This podcast is brought to you by the Voinovich School of Leadership and Public Affairs at Ohio University. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Jazzed About Work, where we talk about everything that might have an impact on your career. I'm your host, Bev Jones. I'm an executive coach, and I wrote the book, Find Your Happy at Work. In this show, we'll focus on the crisis in higher education and the start of a new era. Our two guests have written a massive and important book all about it. It's called Commencement, the Beginning of a New Era in Higher Education. One author, Kate Colbert, is a former educator, and now she's a leading marketing expert. She consults with colleges and universities on brand and enrollment challenges and on all aspects of marketing. And Kate's 2018 best-selling book was Think Like a Marketer. Her co-author, Dr. Joe Zalustio, is a well-known expert on higher ed. He's led teams in many areas of institutional operations, and he understands how the system works. Joe also is host of the nation's top higher ed podcast, the Ed Up Experience podcast. Kate and Joe will share insights from their tremendous new book, and we'll talk about the challenges and the future for both academic professionals, students of all ages, and anybody who's interested in how people are preparing for the workplace these days. Dr. Joe and Kate, I am so excited about having you here. I know between the two of you, you have an amazing depth of knowledge about what's going on in higher education and what might be happening in the future. But before we get into that and before we get into Commencement, your amazing new book, I, I wonder if you'd tell me a little bit about your careers, what you do and what your expertise is here on Jazzed About Work. We always like to know our a little bit about our guest career, but I, I think you both have such broad background. I'd like to uh, hear a little bit about how you um, came together to write the book and, and, and what each of you particularly focuses on in your careers. So why don't we start with you, Joe, because it feels like the book kind of immersed is immersed in your podcast so tell us about both of those things sure absolutely thank you for having us uh, bev it's such an honor to be here uh, my name is joe salustio i'm a 20 plus year veteran i always say 20 plus but won't give the exact number of years a veteran of, of higher education um, i've worked in higher ed in multiple contexts in both for-profit and non-profit um, higher education and um, both career colleges, universities, and so on. Um, and it was uh, somewhere around 2019 when I I went back to school to get my doctorate degree. And what they say about getting a doctor is that all of a sudden when you get it, you have all this spare time that you don't know what to fill it with. Uh-huh. And it's true. That is partly true. And so instead, so I thought, what, what could I fill it with? So I um, was connected with this gentleman named Elvin Freites, who is my, who's the co-founder of the podcast. And we said, hey, there aren't a lot of uh, higher ed podcasts. Maybe we should start one. So we did. We just put it together and we started talking. We didn't really have a lot of direction. We just wanted to 
um, really celebrate lifelong learning. And our tagline of the podcast, which is called The Ed Up Experience, is that we make education your business. And that's what we wanted to do. We wanted to get the message out there about higher education. It evolved very quickly. Um, we started to get lots of guests. We had a very organ, uh, organic and conversational format. And, uh, you know, before, right around the beginning of when we started, Elvin came to me and he said, you know, we should ask the same question of every guest, which is what's the future of higher education to end the, each episode. And someday we'll write a book about that. And I thought, okay, we'll, we'll go ahead. We'll do that. And we did. And who knew, who knew it? But, you know, about two and a half years after um, beginning to record somewhere around March of 2020 was our first episode. We had interviewed like 150 college and university presidents across the U.S. Wow. during during COVID, even right. And we thought, man, we got to do something with this vault of information we've created. So we were introduced through a mutual contact to Kate, who just um, you know happened to be uh, a higher ed marketer and writer and somebody that had a publishing company. And it was just too good to be true. But we thought, strike while the iron's hot, let's write a book. And it's called Commencement, the Beginning of a New Era in Higher Education. And it's based upon the first 125 interviews that we did with college and university presidents. Wow. Well, it's a fascinating book. It's it's really big and fat and heavy. And mostly I try to read the books before I have a guest on, but I, I have to admit what I did was I jumped around with this. And it's a book where you really can jump around. It doesn't matter what page you open on. There's something you can enjoy right there. But one of the areas in higher ed that I'm particularly interested in is, is the marketing part, just because so many folks in the field have been reluctant to market or they don't want to call it market. They don't want to call it the business of higher ed. And so, Kate, your skill set uh, of marketing um, feels like a really good match with Dr. Joe here. I, you started as an academic and yeah. then you got into marketing. Would you kind of tell us about your career history and how you got into marketing? Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much. And I think Joe tells a really beautiful story of how the book came to life. So my I'm proof positive that if you go to a liberal arts college and get a degree in English, you can find a way to uh, make a meaningful career out of it. Um, but probably not, you know, writing poetry or the great American novel for that matter. So, you know, I started out as a word nerd. Um, my first three degrees are all um, degrees in English. I started my career teaching composition and literature um, at the college and university level at various wonderful institutions. And I spent a lot of time with my students and very quickly realized that as much as I loved teaching young adults how to write, I didn't love it as much as I loved writing. So I quickly sort of jumped um, from being a faculty member to um, working in journalism as a um, um, high-tech magazine editor, editor. I was actually the first um, journalist to ever write um, a story about the invention of Bluetooth technology um, back wow. in the day. Yeah. So, and, and what I learned through that experience as writing about something I didn't know, right? I'm not a semiconductor uh, engineer, but that's what I wrote about um, in my job. And I learned very quickly that I loved writing, but I loved learning new things along the way, you know, to Joe's point about lifelong learning. And 
And, you know, I'm proud to say that by the time I finished my stint in, in high tech journalism, people were asking me where I got my engineering degree, which meant I was pulling off the bluff pretty well. And, and then I went back after that. Uh, the sort of dot-com bubble burst and all of our advertisers dried up um, for our magazine. Um, and so I started, um, I went back to higher education. I landed a communications director position at a medical university and spent several years there really, really learning higher ed marketing sort of, you know, in the thick of it, and then became um, the marketing and alumni uh, relations director at a, a graduate business school in Chicago. Um, and then I left from there to consulting and have stayed um focused on higher education really ever since. So these last 10 years or so, I've been helping colleges and universities really sharpen their marketing by better understanding their students and their alumni and their stakeholders. So I'm, I'm a word nerd first. And then with all the market research work became kind of a data junkie. Um, and I spend a lot of my time doing uh, focus groups and, and surveys. In fact, today we're sending out 100,000 emails to uh, high school students who are looking at colleges to find out a little bit more about what they care about the college choice. So that's how I sort of came to be in this space. And um, I would be a student forever if I could afford it, um, but who wants to do the homework? So I always say that working in or around higher education is the next best thing to actually being a student. Well, you too have a very special window, I think, into um, higher ed. Joe, with all of these podcasts and the many, many interviews with presidents and others, can has a really broad view, but in marketing, it really starts with understanding the the product and the audience. And marketing hasn't always been uh, popular with university administrations. I, the <laughs> word marketing hasn't been. I um, do you find that things have changed dramatically on the willingness of universities to market in all kinds of ways? Has there been a trend trend like that, um, Kate? That marketing is is the hot thing now? You know, um, and I'll ask Joe to jump in on this as well, but I, yes and no. So first of all, there are plenty of colleges and universities that still call the department that does all the marketing. They call it the communications department or advancement, mm -hmm. where so they sort of lump fundraising and communications and alumni relations all sort of into one group. And um, so I find that the sort of more progressive um, institutions, meaning that they're growing and they're teaching, they're treating their learners like customers and like VIPs um, do are more likely to use the word um, marketing. Um, and I would say that, you know, in the past, there were have been many institutions where there were plenty of students, so you didn't have to market. Um, so when I worked at the medical university, for example, so the medical university that I worked at is home to um, the Chicago Medical School, among many other institutions. And when I first started working there, um, you know, they would get 7,000, 8,000, 9,000 applications, uh, qualified applications um, for their MD program when they only had 180 seats in the freshman class. And so there was not a supply and demand issue um, at, at that institution. And so did they know anything about marketing? Frankly, no. Um, and their alumni network um, and places like California, believe it or not, um, were sending a lot of students um, our way. And a lot of institutions really sort of lived in that space where there were plenty of students for a long time. And, um, and that's not where we are now, you know, we have a massive birth rate decline. There are not 
nearly as many, um, about 15% fewer um, 18 year olds um, right now and in the next uh, few years. And so schools are really having to compete uh, for students and for applications to their programs. And so marketing is becoming more important. And frankly, I, you know, I think Joe can really speak to this. I think the for-profit colleges and universities um, really mastered um, higher education marketing faster than the nonprofit side uh, of the industry did um, and to the nonprofit side's detriment because a lot of colleges and universities are announcing their closures right now. Yeah, Bev, I, th- I think that a short answer to your question better uh, be yes that uh, colleges and universities are investing more in marketing are, are um, I don't know, bringing the highlight to marketing because the competition is heating up. There are just less students. As Kate said, there's just less students to recruit. Um, and if you want to be in the game, you better have a real strong marketing foundation, marketing messaging. So it's, it's evolving um, slowly, but it is getting there. And, and I think, you know, a balance is always a, it, it's it's like shelf space is another way to think about it. You got only so many items that you can stick up on a limited amount of shelf space. You've got advancement in fundraising. You have recruitment. You've got academics and all these academic centers. You have a, a necessity to sports even to communicate what's happening in a university. But to get students to you, that's marketing. And there is a, a, a bifurcation, I think, that needs to take place between what is communications, what is marketing. But marketing investments are going up. There's, there's this old saying: if you build it, they will come. That's false. Nobody's coming. Uh, if you put it on Google and you do a Google ad, that's where you're going to get found. Um, brand matters, and there's certainly uh, so much to be said for organic brand communication. But if you really want to recruit, you have to do it actively, uh, relentlessly, and, and continuously. And uh, that's what schools are doing. Uh, particularly those that are looking to grow. And that's a big change from the classic uh, image of the um, university in a world of its own. But speaking of marketing, I want to change gears just a little bit here and talk about marketing your book. It is, (laughs) I know it it was launched um, and it uh, really took off, but as you're writing the book and you're thinking about this huge question of where is Ohio, is a university going to be and where is it going to be five years from now and 10 years from now, who are you writing for? Who, who should be reading your book? Uh, why don't you start, uh, Kate? Thank you. Yeah. So, and first of all, thank you um, for previously saying that it's a really readable book, though it's um, pretty massive and complex. In fact, uh, Derek Newton at uh, Forbes joked um, in an article that he wrote about our book that when it arrived in the mail, he thought that an angry reader had sent him a brick um, because it is a pretty it is a pretty big book, right? But but for every joke, you know, there's you know the the great folks. Uh, actually, Joe has a colleague, one of the other vice presidents at Lindenwood University, Ori Covert, said that the book is easy to read and hard to put down. Um, and that was really important to us when we were writing it because we knew we were writing for the higher education industry. And while these folks are smart enough and practiced at reading, um, you know, pardon the expression, really boring things, right? Like dissertations. Um, we didn't want this to be that kind of book. We wanted this book to be conversational and playful and surprising and fun. We wanted it to be, you know, full of 
you know, big, you know, graphics and kind of what we call meme quotes, where if a president says something brilliant, we gave him a whole page, you know, for that one soundbite and, and to really make the book um, to flow really beautifully from, from one page to the next. And that was really important to me as a writer. This book was written for those who work, really everyone who works in and around or on behalf of higher education. So college and university insiders like staff, faculty, administrator, boards, and they will see themselves when we speak to the you in this book. And the book is also for higher education consultants for K-12 leaders who are critical for bringing that pipeline and preparing students to be college ready. And the book is, um, has done really well um, to help out educational technology professionals, um, elected officials. So we talk a lot about community connections and um, sort of that. So that's really important. I think elected officials um, are really appreciating the book. And of course, you know, sort of in your expertise, workforce development professionals. So how do people who are trying to, to develop the workforces and regions and those who might be heads of HR and, and whatnot or training and development professionals at area businesses, you know, around college campuses and whatnot, how do they think about the connection between higher education and what they're trying to accomplish in their businesses. And so um, anybody who has a stake in higher education, um, this is that's the you that we wrote this book for. Now that said, there is a little bit of a so sort of surprise piece that we put into the book in chapter six called Seven uh, Mighty Tips for Choosing the Right College. Um, and it speaks directly to prospective students and or their parents um, about how to make the right college choice. I want to change topics here a little bit, and maybe, Joe, you can help us with this. We have a lot of people who are thinking about going back to school, and not just 18-year-old people, but people of all ages are thinking because so many careers are changing. There's a need for a different kind of education. So can you share some of those tips, both for uh, young people who are going off and um, other people who might be looking for new kinds of training. Joe, you want to comment on um, what are some of those tips? How do you get started in such a confusing world? Yeah, I, that's that's a really important question for higher education because we talked about this earlier, Beth. You know, when people say higher education or you think college, a lot of our brains go right to the 18-year-old who's coming out of high school thinking about choosing a college, and that's really not the majority of students um, the majority of students now are working learners. And if you're a, uh, somebody who is working and you're looking to upskill and reskill yourself for the next job or to keep the job that you have and, or, or do better at that job that you have, you need to find the educational pathways that are going to get you there. And it can be confusing. There are a lot of ways to choose how you want to go to college, but the how is just as important as the what because you can take on debt. Um, it may be too much if you're not... Uh, going through the process the right way and thinking about how you want to achieve. There's non-credit, there's for credit, there's credentials and certificates and degrees. That's what makes it a little bit confusing. But some of the tips are decide what it is you want. Decide what it is you want to get. Is it a, is it a degree? Is it a credential or a um, certificate of some kind where you can add a skill to your resume without... Um, putting in a full four years or two years towards a master's degree? Are you skill stacking to make yourself more employable and more marketable? Or are you looking for the degree as a 
um, as a as a marker of your potential for the future, you have to decide what it is that you want to get because there is something for everyone, and there's companies that are designed to offer something for everyone. So that's one tip: is is what is it that you want to achieve? The next one is how do you want to go on ground, online, hybrid? Because a lot of schools are offering multiple modalities uh, for working learners, online is is really important way that to, to achieve those goals, right? But what does that online environment look like? How do you experience it? Is it self-paced or is it um, structured more to be synchronous? So those, those are some of the technical questions, but I think how much becomes an important question. How much am I willing to spend on myself? Am I willing to take on debt or not? Um, do I want to pay cash? Do, these are the simple questions when you think about it from a consumer context, because anybody, in my opinion, this is my opinion, anybody in higher education is a consumer. If you're a student, you've, you're choosing to buy a product in that college or university or other provider is selling you a product. So you have to think of it like you're buying a product anywhere else. You know, what is it that you need? What is it that you want it to do? And how much are you willing to invest? Those are just like any other product, Bev, when people talk about higher ed, sometimes they think it has to be more complicated than it is. But I think if it's if you look at it like any other major product you're going to invest in, it becomes a lot clearer. Yeah, I think Joe gives some really great tips there, and, and I'll offer uh, two additional ones. You know, so it's important, I think, when you're deciding whether to do some sort of post-secondary education. And, and by the way, you know, to Joe's point, that doesn't mean you're going to get a, a four-year degree or a two-year degree. It might be a certificate program or or, or something, you know, different. Um, but I think it's important for people to understand who might not have sort of insider um, sort of understanding of how higher education works, that reputation of a college or university is not equal to value. And I know a lot of people like to think, well, I want I want to go to this particular place because it's where my dad went to school or my aunt went to school, or I know that the best school, you know, in my opinion, in my state is X, XYZ University. And reputation um, is great, but it really is just a brand, right? And so it's important for folks to understand that colleges and universities in the United States are accredited and through accreditation, most institutions are accredited and accreditation literally guarantees parity when it comes to academic quality. And so, you know, for the most part, a college is a college is a college and, and it's hard for people to think about that. But if you're going to pay, you know, $20,000 more per year um, for, you know, a particular brand name on your diploma, I think it's a really big question to be asking yourself um, about, you know, I can tell you as somebody who has several degrees and, and Joe, you know, has several degrees as well. No one ever asked me where I went to college. They want to know what I can do for them. They want to know how smart am I? What kind of competencies, what kind of skills, what kind of talents do I have? Um, you know, at, at the end, you know, is, is it, you know, to Joe's point, is that is paying for that brand name or, or a particular type of college experience worth the debt, which I think is a huge question. And, and on the debt side and on the cost side, you know, one of the biggest tips that we are constantly providing to families and prospective students is that they need to really understand cost in higher education and how to negotiate. So there's two prices in higher ed. There's sticker price is a lot like buying a car. There's the sticker price that's on the website that says this is how much the tuition costs every year. And then there's actual out-of-pocket costs. And what a lot of folks don't understand is that there's what's called a discount rate in higher education. And so last year, for example, the discount rate um, for 
private liberal arts colleges in the United States was 54%. So what does that mean? So a $40,000 a year tuition sticker price, the average student was only paying $18,200 a year. Well, that sounds great, except those discounts are not automatically applied. So when you get your financial aid award, um, it's not automatically applied that you would get it lowered by 54%. You have to ask for it. You have to negotiate it. You have to. And so there are a lot of ways to do that. There's some really, really great resources out there. Um, I'm a big fan of a, um, a resource called Tuition Fit, tuitionfit.org. And you can go in and you can say, I'm interested in this university and here's my SAT score and my you know, um, GPA and here's how much money that university offered me in financial aid. And you can find out how much they offered all the other kids who just got financial aid offers as well. So you can negotiate. So, um, you know, it's just like calling an airline and trying to convince them to waive a change fee or amend a reservation. You should be having conversations with the colleges and universities you're looking at to negotiate on price. They'll all tell you they don't negotiate on price, but the the secret is that they do. Well, one tra uh, trend that I'm kind of interested in is um, experiential learning uh, as opposed to classroom learning alone in journalism, for example, at WOUB, this, mm -hmm. where we're doing this recording. Sometimes there are 200 students working and, and getting experience and going out and covering things. That is a, a trend at the same time, there are all kind of trends for distance learning and doing things remotely. How is the experiential learning trend, um, do you think, um, being exploited as a marketing tool? And also, it, do, do people really care about it? Or is it just something that universities want to try to, I don't know which of, if either of you want to address that, but is experiential learning going to be different in the future? Oh, I'm going to give you a quick answer and then I'm going to punt this to Joe. So I'll give you by way of example, um, Northeastern University in Boston, which is a top 50 private research institution. Um, you know, many of us would say that it's, you know, a, a sort of a top tier prestigious institution. They are best known for what they call their co-op program, where their students sort of stop taking classroom courses um, once, twice, or even three times during their degree um, program for their undergrad program. And they go work in what's called the sort of a co-op employment that the university helps them, them line up where they go work for six months and they get paid, by the way, um, which helps offset tuition. And they get to do the things they want to do. So somebody who comes in and thinks they want to be a civil engineer, um, and then they go do a co-op in civil engineering and get to really work in, in it and find out, oh gosh, I don't, maybe this is not for me. I want to maybe change my major to electrical engineering. It's a really great way for them to sort of test drive their careers before they're sort of too late at the end. Um, if you take a look at the f institutions like Northeastern that are really, really well known for, for co-op programs for this experiential learning. Um, and then you look at the fact that um, Northeastern is often, you know, rated number one in, in, in career services in the United States. Um, you know, th that's where the rubber meets the road. These institutions, Drexel is another great example of an institution that has really great experiential learning. Colleges and universities that have bet big on hands-on experiential learning for their students, things way beyond the classroom, um, 
are really, really demonstrating a lot of career success. Um, a lot of their students are, you know, coming straight out of their programs. Northeast Northeastern has um, a, a really great stat. 51%, I believe, of all the students um, who graduate from there get at least one job offer from one of the co-op employers they had while they were in the in the undergraduate program. So, so it, it's not just... Um, a marketing ploy or a trend river, but are there a lot of people that say that they have great experiential learning and can't prove it? Yeah, there's plenty of colleges that are saying that in their marketing, but those that are really doing it, um, I think are delivering a lot of value for their their graduates. I don't really have too much to add to that, Bev. I think it's table stakes right now for colleges. If, uh, if you can't provide the hands-on learning experience, uh, there's going to be this big question of return on investment that comes back, right? Because you have to be able to execute the skills that you're learning and the ROI conversation of higher ed is one that's very active right now. Well, I tend to really love the experiential program, but um, there's so many different kinds, but for some people, remote is opening possibilities uh, that just never existed. If you're living in a small town and working um your way through college, that can be a way to do things. How are the the fully online programs doing? Are, are we at a good place with those yet? I think so. Um, along with that, you, you, there is uh, some, you have to dispel some of the rumors. There's a lot of um, people out there still that will say something like, you know, an online education isn't equal to that of an in-person education. When, in fact, um, in most instances, at least from an accreditor perspective, it is exactly the same. Now, how somebody wants to learn can be different, but in terms of the outputs, it's the same or else that college wouldn't be able to offer it. So that's that's an important distinction to make. I think when you're looking at online education, you're really looking at two main areas. Number one, it's flexible. Uh, flexibility is a huge issue uh, for students. How can I go to school and maintain all of the other things I need to do in my life? And again, we're talking about students, typically working learners that are going online. Although one of the growing trends in higher education right now is that your traditional student that we think in our minds, the 18-year-old coming out of high school, going into college is picking up more and more online classes because they are a generation of COVID kids and they were online for a while and experienced some flexibility and now they're looking for that flexibility. That old saying that it's easier to give something than take it away is true. And so there is a higher demand for online classes in general because of the flexibility. If you think of that in terms of an 18-year-old college student, why do I have to go sit in a lecture hall when I can go sit on the grass hill over here with four of my friends and me in, in class together? So at the same time, even so, it's taking away the physical requirement of of, uh, of going and sitting in a space. But so that's one, the working learner. And then uh, secondly, it's access. How do, how do we get learning opportunities to rural areas, to areas where there's lower economic uh, populations? bringing in Wi-Fi access. And if you're able to bring in Wi-Fi access, then you're giving opportunities to, for higher education to exist that wouldn't typically exist. And there's very big online universities in the United States that are working tirelessly to do that. Like Western Governors University is an example. 
they have like, uh, what, 180,000 students or some ridiculous number like that. But they're, one of their goals is to expand access as widely as possible. So online education, the trend of online education is only going to grow, particularly when you layer on AI, Beverly, and you know this uh, as a podcaster, some of these podcast tools that we use are all based on AI. And uh, artificial intelligence is going to change the game for us in ways we don't even know yet. Yeah, AI is just is changing everything, it, every field, every classroom. It's uh, it is uh, pretty amazing. But let let me change gears a little bit. We're running out of time. I just noticed. But let me ask ask one question here on uh, this podcast. We've heard from a lot of programs that are coming up with new apprenticeship programs with the uh, a strong uh, involvement of employers and sort of guaranteed employment opportunities for people to go through the program. We're seeing uh, companies who are coming up with their own training programs. We're seeing the people who need um, to, to hire trained people playing a role in creating uh, the classroom work. Are are you seeing as a trend that universities are more open to work to be uh, doing partnerships with employers and that there are kind of new sorts of partnerships out there that are going to deliver uh, learning, particularly for long life kinds of learning situations? Is, is, can either of you comment on whether yeah. that needs to be happening? Yeah. So the answer is yes. So so there's an interesting thing happening. Higher education is not used to having to compete with anyone outside of higher education. And yesterday I saw a really compelling commercial from uh, AARP about um, programs and certificates that they're offering um, to help people sort of upskill and reskill for um, career changes later in life. And so, you know, colleges and universities, I think, are a little bit nervous um, about, you know, whether it's, you know, Google certificates or AARP or all the people that are doing this. But the good news is, is that, there is a important role for higher education in this. And most institutions that are providing some sort of apprenticeship programs or certificate programs are partnering with higher ed. Um, and higher education, I think, is doing an excellent job right now of becoming um, part of that. So I'll give two quick examples. So there's a really great um, community college that was just recently founded called Foundry College. And um, Joe had the opportunity to interview their president, Dr. Akiba Kovitz. And, and they're really all about getting folks through really, really um, fast, meaningful certificate programs and giving them not just a higher education credential, like an associate's degree, but giving them a, a, a a sort of an industry credential. So if you go to Foundry College and you study um, to become a Salesforce administrator, you don't just get your certificate from Foundry, you also get a Salesforce license. You also you know, you get a, a Salesforce um, sort of certificate um, to be able to go do that work. And so those kinds of things are happening a lot. My nephew is 19, his name is Parker, and he's doing a really cool program right now where he's learning um, from um, a Chicago area company that that um, does automation, robotics, and uh, mechatronics. And he's working essentially for this company all day and they're teaching him how to do this work, um, which is really going to set him up for a great career. And meanwhile, he's also taking classes at the local community college. It's a partnership between the company and the community college. When he's done, he'll be fully trained in um, ARM and automation, um, robotics and mechatronics. He'll have an associate's degree 
and he has a full-time job lined up. Um, and so it's like a five-year experience. And by the way, he won't have paid a penny in tuition. And so those kinds of things. My husband was trained in the same way. He's an IT professional. Um, he did an apprenticeship straight out of high school um, with Siemens. And so there, those kinds of programs used to be really popular 25 years ago. They're coming back um, and they're becoming really, really popular once again. And um, yeah, absolutely. Workforce development. Higher ed has a huge um place to play in that. Um, John Renone, actually, uh, who Joe um, interviewed, um, the president of Mountain Gateway Community College, said that if a college or if a company in his region has to up and leave and move their headquarters or their factory or whatnot because they can't find people trained locally to be able to be their employees, if that company leaves, he said to Joe, that's on us. And I thought that was really powerful to think about presidents of colleges and universities thinking of themselves as workforce developers and realizing that it's perhaps one of the most important things they can do is be partnering with local businesses to make sure that if somebody needs more welders, then we better have a welding program. If somebody needs more you know, marketers, we better have a marketing program. And so I think that we are really just at the tip of the iceberg with how companies and higher education are working together. Well, there are a lot of exciting things going on, and it is absolutely true. Higher education is no longer an island. All <laughs> kinds of things are happening. And that brings us back to your book, because whether you are an HR person who's struggling to find the kind of people you need, or you're an entrepreneur, any kind of uh, business, it uh, seems, has some need to understand with what's happening uh, in higher ed. And again, the book, the full title of the, this amazing book is Commencement, the beginning of a new era in higher education. If you're interested in the workforce of today or tomorrow, if you're interested in what your next career is going to be, if you're interested in being stimulated about opportunities that might be out there, um, I recommend the book. People don't have to read the whole thing. You can find the things you're really interested in. And uh, it's a, I think it's, a, it's an amazing contribution to those of us who are trying to figure out how uh, all these pieces come together. Kate and Joe, thank you so much for uh, joining me today. And I, I wish you well as you're out and about talking about what's happening in higher education. Thank you, Bev. Thank you so much. Today we've been talking with Kate Colbert and Joe Salustio about the start of a new era in higher education. This podcast is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our audio engineer. I'm your host, Beverly Jones, author of Find Your Happy at Work. And our sponsor is the Voinovich School of Leadership and Public Service here at Ohio University. Today's tip is that learning something new is always a good way to jumpstart a career that feels stuck. And there are so many kinds of new certificate and other programs that you'll find plenty of choices if you do want to go back to school. Thanks for listening to Jazz About Work. And if you like our show, please help us spread the word. Thank you.